Um, Hugh St. Victor, as we just saw, linked memory and meditation closely. And the common medieval practice of Lexio Divina used the monks' memory, their memory of scripture, to deepen their meditation. And this meditation on scripture increased the stored treasure of scripture in their minds. And so the cyclical kind of pattern moved from memorization to meditating, back to memorizing, and on again to meditating. So it's through this practice of meditative reading, of which um, memorizing was an integral part, that through the centuries, people have made the scriptures their own, and through which they've had their identity shaped. Talking about Hugh, I mentioned that he read scripture, not just, no, I did not mention that because I didn't get around to that. But I, I would have mentioned, had I had two hours instead of, you know, one hour to talk, I would have mentioned that Hume uh, treats scripture not just at a literal level, but that this uh, meditative reading of his um, also intimately ties up with a way of, of, of reading scripture that moves beyond a literal uh, account of reading scripture, literal approach to reading scripture, to uh, other levels of reading scripture, including um, allegorical readings of scripture and moral readings of scripture. Actually, medieval theologians often refer to four different levels, different approaches. Uh, the literal meaning, the allegorical meaning, the moral, or also called, which is also often called the tropological um, reading of scripture, and then finally an eschatological. Uh, also often referred to as an anagogical. Anagoge means going upward, leading upward. So an eschatological or anagogical reading of Scripture. Now for, for, for Hugh, as for many other uh, medieval readers of Scripture, meditation and memorizing has everything to do with crisscrossing these various levels, various approaches of reading, to reading. If you're reading the Bible strictly to figure out what the original author meant. Now, what you're doing is something very legitimate, but you're limiting your reading to what you can see on the surface of things. All you're engaged with is the historical or literal sense. And the kind of mind that this approach requires is the mind of a historian. It's the mind of an archaeologist. Now, it's a good thing. We need historians and we need archaeologists. But it's a limited thing. We read scripture, you and I read scripture, not because it gives us pure facts, pura natura again, not just because it, not because it gives us pure facts from the past, but because we know that the, that the Spirit uses Scripture to shape our character and to lead us into the life of God, Mr. Gaji. That's the aim of reading Scripture. And so Hugh, because he read with that purpose in mind, was interested in far more than just the literal surface meaning, although that was part of his reading of Scripture. And actually, although I'm not going to go there, Hugh really made sure that his readers knew that that was an important part of reading Scripture. But it was only one part of it. Hugh meditated on the Scriptures so as to ultimately reflect more deeply on what the text might say about Christ about the Christian walk, about eternal life. In other words, allegory, tropology, morals, and anagogy or eschatology. But Christ, but the Christian walk, but eternal life. That formed the heartbeat of his meditative reading. Scripture for Hugh was about mystagogy. And all his catechetical instruction, all his theological instruction to his novices had that same mystagogical aim. In this last session, then, I want to turn with you to the kind of biblical reading that is implied when we take mystagogy as our aim. By all means, let us teach our students the contents of the creed, 
Let us teach them the Ten Commandments and let us teach them the Lord's Prayer. As Father Lee mentioned, it's a sine qua non for the mystagogical life. Absolutely. But let's keep in mind that the initiation or mystagogy that we aim for in the process is sustained by a type of biblical reading that is meditative in character. A kind of biblical reading that itself also aims at mystagogy. Part of the catechetical task, especially in a materialist age, an age of pure nature, of pure facts, is to teach our students again that reading scripture is about mystagogy. It's about initiation into Christ, initiation into a life of virtue and into eternal life. It is about allegory. It is about tropology. It is about anagogy. I grew up in a strict confessional reformed confession, reformed tradition. This tradition taught me to read the scriptures historically, though always with a view to Christ, thankfully. Our preachers loved the Old Testament inasmuch as the Old Testament witnesses to Christ's coming. 20th century Dutch theologians, I grew up in Holland, right? 20th century Dutch theologians such as Ben Hoverdaar and Klaas Hilder emphasized the need for a thorough grammatical historical exegesis, reading scripture against the backdrop of the original context, carefully taking into account the literary genre of the passage under consideration. Their so-called redemptive historical exegesis staunchly opposed the moralizing and fragmentary use of the Old Testament that they encountered in what they called exemplaric preaching, in which the, the, the characters of the Old Testament were, were reduced merely to the function of a positive or negative role model. Over against that kind of exemplaric use, the redemptive historical method that I grew up on took as its starting point the centrality of history in the narrative of salvation. In Old Testament narratives, God shows how he prepares Israel and the world for the coming of Christ. And the result of that approach was, a, was thoroughly Christocentric preaching. Without any moralism, although some people in the pew also complained without any personal application <laughs> because it was so historical. Right. Every Old Testament text was analyzed in terms of its historical relationship to Jesus Christ. I served as a pastor for several years in, uh, in that denomination. And during that time, I got acquainted with N.T. Wright, with Tom Wright. I devoured all of his works um, uh, when I was a pastor. Um, as uh, many of you will know, Wright was an advocate of what we now, know, what now call the new perspective on Paul. And while, while, while Wright is at some points um, incompatible with the Reformed tradition, I think, especially in, in, in topics such as predestination and justification, those two don't mesh well, I think, his hermeneutic overall, his, his mode of interpreting scripture, is actually very much in sync with the redemptive historical approach that I grew up on. Except that Wright is even more historical, and uh, the way that I think about, about that now, more reductively <laughs> historical than the tradition I grew up in. For Wright, and for an increasingly large number of evangelical biblical scholars, exegesis is a purely historical discipline one that escapes what is often called abstract and timeless theologies of Western Platonized Christianity. Now, one of the great drawbacks of both the redemptive historical method and of the new perspective on Paul is that it is hard to, say, to see how with these approaches readers are able to relate the historical narrative to their own lives. Hence the complaints in the tradition in which I grew up. What does this have to do with my life? <laughs> right. um, 
And it seems to me that the only way in these hermeneutical frameworks, the only way to arrive at a personal appropriation is actually to move from the historical narrative of the Old Testament, say, via Jesus Christ, to which it points, to the situation of today by way of application. And so you first have exegesis. They have a certain movement that we are not quite sure how to navigate, perhaps, and you go on to application. One example, exile. Um, take Jeremiah, lived at the time of exile. Uh, how do you preach on his warnings of the impending Babylonian onslaught? Well, you first read the text in this grammatical, historical, and also in this new perspective approach. You read the text carefully, um, historically, and then you move from Jeremiah to Jesus Christ as the one who, as the new Israel, took the exilic curse upon himself. By traversing 600 years from Jeremiah to the life of Christ, and then to the origin of the church, we discover the end of the journey which in and through Christ, so that in and through Christ, the exile has now come to an end. We've been placed into the freedom, liberation from exile, freedom of the children of God. Well, this, this approach, the book of Jeremiah, is of significance to be sure, but it's of significance only in as much as we ironically leave the prophet and the exile that he announced behind, historically as the historical record of the book that bears his name. Strictly historical readings of scripture separate the reader from the original event described in the biblical text. Now there are important exegetical insights that these historical approaches yield, and I'm not being facetious in any way, there are. But the weakness of historical exegesis is that it does not by itself encourage meditative reading. Why not? Well, the reason is, it doesn't treat the Old Testament as sacrament, sacramentum, which already contains the New Testament reality of Christ, the race of Christ. Or as St. Irenaeus and others would have put it, strictly historical exegesis, purely historical exegesis, pura natura, purely historical exegesis, doesn't see Christ as the treasure that is already hidden in the field, Matthew 13, right? As the treasure that is already hidden in the field of the Old Testament, and therefore as already present in it. This sacramental mode of interpretation of Irenaeus and others has rich spiritual and personal implications. After all, if it is true that the mystery of the New Testament reality, the Christ event, is already present in the historical surface level of the Old Testament, then that allows the Old Testament to speak directly into the lives of believers today, both personally and corporately. We're not just separated from it by several millennia, but we are actually ourselves present in that hidden dimension of the Old Testament. If Christ, after all, if Christ is genuinely present in the scriptures, then believers who are in Christ are present as well, real, really present as well in the Old Testament. You and I, therefore, find our lives and realities reflected in it. Put differently, when Christian readers find the treasure in the field, Christ, allegorically, typologically, we'll get back to that, then we discover ourselves. We discover our identity within the treasure. <clears throat> Why is that so? Because it's in finding the presence of Christ that we most deeply come to know ourselves. When we do catechesis as mystagogy, therefore, when we teach our students to read the Bible mystagogically, we teach them both to get to know Christ and to get to know themselves. And those two are always two sides of one and the same coin. 
A brilliant third century interpreter, Origen, pauses uh, at one point in book three of his commentary on the Song of Songs to explain what he believes allegory is all about. Interestingly, he doesn't begin with exegesis at all. He begins with a lengthy discussion about metaphysics, like we did this morning, ontology. What he calls Paul's teaching, this is his understanding of metaphysics, Paul's teaching that the invisible things of God are understood by means of things that are visible. And the things that are not seen are beheld through their relationship and likeness to things seen. And then he clarifies how he sees that relationship between visible and invisible things. God, he writes, thus shows that this visible world teaches us about that which is invisible. And that this earthly scene contains certain patterns, he says, exemplaria, certain patterns of things heavenly. Thus, it is possible for us to mount up, he says, ascender, to mount up from things below to things above, and to perceive and understand from the things we see on earth the things that belong to heaven. So earthly things, for origin, contain certain patterns of heavenly things. And our purpose is to go up, anagogy, right, leading up, ascender it. Origen has in mind that in an important sense, it's not just human beings who are made in the image of God. And this is how he puts it, actually. But other creatures, too, he says, have something that, whose, whose image, something whose image and likeness, as he calls it, they are actually bearing. And he uses the example of a mustard seed, the smallest of creatures, he said. It actually has a likeness to heavenly things. In fact, the prototype, the archetype of a mustard seed is nothing less than the kingdom of heaven itself, as Jesus makes clear in Matthew 13, 31. So he observes, Origen does, that while it's true that flora and fauna do serve our bodily needs, they also have what he calls the forms and likenesses forms and likenesses of incorporeal things so that the soul can be taught by these visible things, these corporeal things, and taught by these visible things, these sensible things, how to contemplate, how to contemplate those other things that are invisible and heavenly. For origin, a mustard seed, in other words, does not just point to the kingdom of heaven, as something far away. No, the mustard seed contains the very pattern of the kingdom. In some way, makes it really present. Uh, just by way of illustration, I'm reminded as I'm saying this, there's a, a new book by Gerald McDermott. And Gerald McDermott. Now, I can't think of the title. Everyday Glory. Glory. Yeah, so Everyday Glory. It's a magnificent illustration of this. He draws especially on Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards is much like origin on this. Um, everything in the world is a type of something, right? And makes it present. So, so, so McDermott basically talks how, how the entire world is sacramental in character uh, for Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards simply stands in the Christian tradition, as we just see from origin. Now... Um, Yeah, let me finish this. The key passage for origin in Wisdom 7 is Wisdom 7. Here King Solomon lists many aspects of the world around him, about which God has given him knowledge. And King Solomon ends that list of many aspects of the world with what he calls all such things as are hid and manifest. Hidden things and manifest things. Occulta et manifesta. Then Origen takes this phrase, hid and manifest, as applying to each of the items in that list that Solomon has listed, all these aspects of the world. They all have a hidden and a manifest aspect. That expression, hid and manifest, 
says Origen, that expression shows that everything visible or manifest here on earth has its invisible, hidden complement in heaven. This is how Origen puts it. He who made all things in wisdom so created the species of visible things on earth that he placed in them some teaching and knowledge of things invisible and heavenly, whereby the human mind might mount, ascendere, to spiritual understanding and seek the grounds of things in heaven. So created things contain heavenly teaching for origin, heavenly knowledge, and the human mind is meant to go up to discover what this spiritual or heavenly knowledge is that God has created and placed in created things. So Origen goes through each of the items in Solomon's list, showing from Scripture how each is a copy of a heavenly exemplar. Heavenly form, you might almost say, right? And how it contains heavenly knowledge, therefore. Let me give you a couple of examples. When the Book of Wisdom mentions that Solomon knows the natures of animals and the rages of beasts, Origen points out that in Scripture, human beings too are referred to as fox, brood of vipers, stallions, senseless beasts, deaf adder. His point is that when with our physical eyes we see animals acting in certain modes, we can then mentally transfer those modes of acting to human beings. Likewise, when Solomon claims that he knows also the forces of the winds, Origen turns immediately to Paul's language of winds of doctrine. Ephesians 4. You see the verbal association that he does, right, between the winds um, of doctrine and, uh, and, and the, wind, the forces of the winds in wisdom. The very common, common way of reading scripture in the tradition. He does that, Origen does that, to make clear that on the visible side there are winds and breezes of the air, while on the invisible side there are forces of unclean spirits. And he concludes from this discussion, God's wisdom, he says, teaches us from the actual things and copies, that's what he calls them, copies, or exemplar really, copies, he teaches from those things, things that are unseen, by means of those that are seen. In this way, he says, God carries us over. The actual verb is an interesting one, transfera. God transfers us from earthly to heavenly things. This is all metaphysics, right? First is metaphysics. I was, we were talking over lunch with some people about the need for metaphysics uh, in, in, in reading scripture. Uh, for Origen, um, you cannot but read Scripture through some kind of metaphysical lens. And the question is, which kind is it going to be? <laughs> which kind is it going to be? And so he first wants to make clear how it is that he reads Scripture. And that's why he deals with this question of the relationship between visible and invisible things. Now, to be sure, um, Origen's metaphysic, the kind of metaphysic that he use, uses, is a theological metaphysic. That is to say, it's not independent from Scripture and from theology. But nonetheless, all the same, Origen believes that attention paid to metaphysics is time well spent. Good metaphysics ties in with good hermeneutics. And the obverse, sadly, is true too. So don't let anybody say to you, well, I'm just exegeting the Bible. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You are using a particular hermeneutic that is tied in with a particular metaphysic. And if all you do is trying to ascertain what the author really meant, then your metaphysic is really problematic. Metaphysics prepares us, Origen thinks, to grasp how we should read the Song of Songs. And for Origen also the rest of scripture. He writes, this relationship and he's still talking about the relationship between earthly and heavenly things. This relationship does not obtain only with creatures. The divine scripture itself is written with wisdom of a similar sort, 
because of certain mystical and hidden things, again, right? Certain mystical and hidden things. The people is visibly led forth from the terrestrial Egypt, the earthly Egypt, and journeys through the desert, where there was a biting serpent, a scorpion, thirst, where all the other happenings took place that are recorded. All these events, Exodus events, have the aspects and likeness, again, same language we had earlier, the aspects and likeness of certain hidden things. What biblical interpretation does on origin's take is to move from the visible event to the mystical and hidden things. The events in the desert did occur. Origin is not a skeptic about history. But they did so for the purpose of portraying hidden mystical things. And that's what we're particularly concerned with. It's those mystical and hidden things. And for a Christian, that means the things revealed to us in Jesus Christ. That's primarily, when it comes to allegory, that's primarily what we're thinking about. That's why Christians read the scriptures. For origin, metaphysics, and biblical reading are closely tied. The way we think about the God-world relationship is immediately tied in with how we read scripture. Too often, I think, we perhaps read, treat biblical interpretation as a value-free endeavor, neutral, the pura natura approach that, I, that we discussed this morning. We're equipped to do it on that understanding once we have acquired the proper tools, biblical languages, grammar, syntax, navigate concordances, computer programs, and the like, as well as a solid understanding of the right method Right? Establishing the original text, translating it, determining authorship, original audience, studying historical, cultural context, figuring out the genre, looking for themes, applicability. Now, what that does is it reads scripture on the pattern of the hard sciences. We talked earlier about is theology a science? In this approach, theology is certainly a science, right? And it's very much like the hard sciences. Not science in the way Thomas Aquinas talks about it, scientia, sharing in divine self-knowledge. Now, this is a different kind of science. And on this understanding, usually the assumption is that metaphysics does not affect our interpretation. The Bible, so we think too often, ought to be read on its own terms without an alien metaphysical scheme attached to it. Well, for origin, metaphysics does affect one's interpretation. And I think he gives us much food for thought, whereas modern attempts to separate biblical interpretation from metaphysics are misguided. Are misguided, why? Because they fail in their mystagogical aim. They fail in the purpose of our catechesis. We can see the same link between metaphysics and interpretation when we turn to patristic readings of the Beatitudes. I'm going to give you that as, as an instance of this. And we'll look at St. Augustine, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and at Pope Leo as, as examples of the kind of reading of the Beatitudes um, that is implied in such an approach, such a sacramental approach. And there's two areas, I think, where these church fathers present us with challenges. Emphases that I think have been underrepresented in much contemporary theology, and emphases that we simply cannot do without if our retrieval of the church fathers is going to help us is in our rediscovery of mystagogical exegesis. The two challenges have to do with two M's, mountainous reading and moral virtue. So again, we'll talk about virtue in connection with the Beatitudes. Mountainous reading and moral virtue. Now in both of these areas, and I should forewarn you here, in both of these areas, the church fathers really challenge us. They present us with a challenge to our identity. Certainly they presented me with a challenge to my identity when I first started reading 
the church fathers, and it deeply affected the way in which I read the scriptures. Nonetheless, it's a challenge that I think we must pay attention to, careful attention to, for the sake of the future viability of the church in our culture. So that as transfigured Christians, we may direct and offer guidance to our culture toward the ultimate aim of the beatific vision of God in Jesus Christ. Such a shift in personal character that I've been alluding to is both unavoidable and indispensable for our churches if we are to stand firm in the midst of a cultural malaise such as the one that we're experiencing. You could also simply put it in more Platonic terms. Right? If in doubt, go back to Plato. We cannot live in the darkness of our culture's cave. We must open up to the transfiguring light of the gospel on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, the transfiguring light of the gospel. Something I'm convinced the church fathers are specially equipped to help us with. So ultimately, the reason why I'm passionate about this patristic mode of reading is that we cannot move ahead without the lived experience of a participatory, of a sacramental metaphysic, which characterized the Father's approach to Scripture every turn of the way. So let's move straight to the Beatitudes and to the first of those two challenges that I mentioned to you. This comes to the fore as we listen to the way they draw attention to the mountain on which, according to Matthew's gospel, Jesus delivered his sermon. Now, as modern readers, you and I are perhaps inclined to read past a reference like that, that it was on the mountain, maybe a small topographical detail. And if we're really keen readers, and some of our also historical exegetes are very keen readers, now, we may recognize certain similarities between Moses and Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Many contemporary New Testament scholars take note of that. The mountain may remind us of Mount Sinai, and we may conclude Jesus is the second Moses, the second lawgiver. Get back to that in a second. But intrigued as they were with the very words of Scripture always, fathers, the church fathers and also these, because of this meditative reading, church fathers and medieval authors, they're, they're people of the word. And I mean like words, like particular words. They love words and what words do. Um, and so any oversight of the word mountain must be seriously, seriously um, hamper our ability to understand the Beatitudes for the church fathers. So they wouldn't necessarily disagree with linking Moses through this referencing of mountains. Moses and Jesus through this referencing. They wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But their concern for spiritual interpretation meant they were interested in finding with origin eternal heavenly truths. So that they would consider our contemporary preoccupation with history with authorial intent, as simply insufficiently attuned to the divine purpose of the text. Always ask the question of the telos first. Then ask what you're going to do by way of reading. The fourth century Cappadocian mystic, whom we've seen come across several times today, St. Gregory of Nyssa, hones in immediately in his work on the Beatitudes to the mountain, on the mountain reference. The most Platonic of the three church fathers probably, Gregory pretty much begins his first sermon by contrasting Matthew's mountain, a spiritual mount of sublime contemplation, as he calls it, with Plato's cave. He writes this, the mountain leaves, leaves behind all shadows where have I heard that before, right? Leave behind all shadows. Cast by rising hills 
of wickedness. The psalm compares, Psalm 36, I think, compares mountains and hills and, you know. On the contrary, says, says um, Gregory, this mountain is lit up on all sides by the rays of the true light, and from its summit all things that remain invisible to those imprisoned in the cave may be seen in the pure air of truth. Now, the word of God himself, who calls blessed those who have ascended with him, we're going up with him, specifies the nature and the number of the things that are contemplated from this height. So he talks about people imprisoned in the cave, right? Reference to Plato, Book 7 of the Republic. People imprisoned in the cave. The place of our earthly realities, where we're still in the shadows, where we still need to be untied, where we still need to learn to stand outside the cave in the light, gazing in the sunlight of the true eternal forms and all that. Very difficult to do after long imprisonment in a damp, dark cave. Things are much the same for St. Augustine, preeminent Western father. St. Matthew's reference to the mountain triggers, yes, indeed, Psalm 36, verse 6. We saw that briefly already, sort of indirectly alluded to in Gregory. St. Augustine pulls out Psalm 36, 6. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains, he says. He quotes. And then he takes the combination of thy righteousness and mountains to imply a reference to Jesus Christ. Christological reading, right? The psalm may well mean, he says, that the one master alone fit to teach matters of so great importance teaches on a mountain. It's got to be on a mountain. So he links physical height directly with spiritual height. The mountain, he says, is a reference to the greater precepts of righteousness of Psalm 36. And the bishop contrasts those greater precepts with lesser ones, the hills. Rising hills of Psalm 36. Lesser precepts given to the Jews, Old Testament commandments. So he contrasts law and gospel, mountain and hills. And then he identifies that contrast between, or, or he identifies it with a juxtaposition of heavenly and earthly kingdoms. He writes, it's not surprising the greater precepts are given for the kingdom of heaven. The lesser ones for an earthly kingdom, for Israel, right? the law. It's by means of incredible mental agility, obviously, <laughs> verbal association with Old Testament passages, a number of distinct exegetical steps, each of them implying the previous one, that Augustine finally arrives, as he often does, at a conclusion. All sorts of winding paths when you read Augustine's exegesis. When the Son of God teaches on the mountain, this is the conclusion, when the Son of God teaches on a mountain, you know it's gospel teaching. That's the basic point, very simple. I don't know why he didn't say that right away. When you're on the mountain, it's gospel teaching. Pope Leo the Great, so he writes to please in part, right? He, he draws us in. That's, that's what... It's, it's catechetical mystagogy. That's what he's doing. He doesn't need to go through all this. He wants to drag us into the scriptures. And through dragging us into the scriptures, he wants to drag us, to draw us to the gospel. Pope Leo the Great. Um, short homily only. Only Beatitudes. But even in that brief homily, the Pope takes time to refer to the great significance that the word mountain must undoubtedly have. Jesus Christ, he says, called his apostles to the mountain so that from the height of that mystic seat he might instruct them in the loftier doctrines. Quite similar to Augustine, right? He might teach them in the loftier doctrines, signifying from the very nature of the place and act that he it was who had once honored Moses by speaking to him. Two observations. One is, like Augustine, the mystic significance of this lofty, high, great place. Right? But then the second thing, the interesting thing is, um, Leo, much like many contemporary interpreters, does put Moses into the picture, as you will have noticed. 
right? But how does he do it? What does he say? He says, he it was, from the Lakshya doctrines, we can infer that he it was who had once honored Moses by speaking to him. So there's no move typologically from type to archetype. There's no move here from Moses to Jesus. Instead, there's a move from Moses to the apostles and from God to Jesus. But he it was who instructed Moses. That is to say, God. God instructed Moses. And so Jesus instructs the apostles. You notice what he's doing. Jesus is placed by Pope Leo in the position of God himself. Just as God once instructed Moses, so God again in Christ, the hypostatic union, right? So God again comes to, to his own and teaches them. The Beatitudes are the pronouncement of the Lord God himself. That makes one look at the Beatitudes somewhat differently. One thing that must have stood out in everything I've said so far is the astounding vertical orientation in, in this exegetical approach, right? It's all about going up. It's all about the transcendence of God. And all about the desire for each of these readers in some way to, to get us out of the cave. Well, friends, if anything our culture today is, is it's a cave. And the sad thing is you and I feel at home, much like the prisoners in Plato's cave. We feel at home in the cave because there's lots of pleasures in the cave. Um, our reading of scripture links up with our metaphysic. And our culture, let me put it really cautiously, our culture does not presuppose us, does not, does not dispose us. Our culture does not dispose us to reading Scripture vertically. Why is that? Why are, we read, why are we inclined to read the Bible historically? Well, it's for obvious, reading, obvious reasons. With just history, pura natura, pure history, you can stay in the cave. For the other three senses, allegory, tropology, anagogy, you need to get out of the cave. And most of us don't want to get out of the cave. This is not just an academic agreement about some people who are into historical exegesis, others who are into spiritual exegesis. No, it's a spiritual issue. Question is, are we at home in this world, yea or nay? My answer is, no, we're not. Our catechesis aims to, to have students crawl out of the cave. It's called conversion. By relentlessly focusing on this worldly realities, whether they be economic, social, political realities, we end up forgetting that it's only when we get extracted from the cave that we can shed the light of a transfigured humanity Think Gregor of Nyssa, the light of transfiguration. It's only then that we can shed the light of our transfigured humanity on our fellow human beings in the cave. Exegetical flat-footedness in exegesis leaves us here in the dark cave in, purely historical, in a purely historical horizontal context. context. But the biblical author tells us that we've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, that we are in the presence of the transfigured Christ when we enter into the liturgy. And therefore, when we preach and when we teach, we dare not avoid the light of the transfiguration. So that's challenge one. I told you it was challenges. Challenge to me, challenge to all of us, I think. Second challenge has to do with moral virtue. Second M, mountain moral virtue. A catechesis program, despite what I may have said in the previous session, a catechesis program aims to do more than just cram our heads with information. It has to do, far more importantly, with the question of virtue. 
Formation depends on readers being changed or transfigured, then virtue is a key element in how we understand catechetical teaching. Virtue was crucially important to the church fathers. Now that's a challenge for many of us, especially those of us who are um, thoroughly embedded within the Protestant tradition. We've learned to take sola gratia as the starting point and middle point and end point of our thinking. In some way, that's good, depending on how we understand gratia. But often, the result is that we're easily inclined to look askance at patristic writings, which display what we as Protestants intuitively feel is perhaps too great an eagerness to instill virtues. We quickly link any talk about virtue with moralism, with good works, with salvation by works. Right? And at that point, we're lost. Um, and so we can't warm up to the church fathers as a result. Well, for Gregory, Augustine, and Leo, each of them, growth in virtue means growth in perfection and as such growth in the life of God. Salvation is a process. In uh, Augustine, you would, never, you would never hear Augustine say, well, I got saved 20 years ago in Milan. Why not? I mean, in an important way, it's true. But he continues to be saved. Right? It's a process that started in some way, at least, in Milan. But, and there was a decisive moment in Milan, for sure. Uh, but it continues. He's growing in virtue, in perfection, in the life of God. So for none of these three authors is salvation as something that's decided once for all by way of an external or nominal declaration. Remember those words from this morning, right? External, nominal. It's not by way of an external, nominal declaration that one is, simply, that one is saved. Virtue is the aim of interpretation. An interpretation that doesn't lead to virtuous habits isn't interpretation worthy of God. If the Christian life is a journey into deeper communion ever with God, then Scripture is simply the guide, the vadamakum, the take-along on the journey to guide us. In this, yeah, um, I'm going to skip a section here. Scripture is an aid, a sacrament that helps us in the development of, of virtue and that transfigures our characters so that our salvation becomes not just an external legal thing, two separate circles, but also a real or a participatory thing, the circles overlapping, the circles of this morning overlapping. And so the Beatitudes, as a result, for the Church Fathers, are all about virtue. The Church Fathers don't read the Beatitudes as talking about the plight that we have here, people going through a rough time today, but then we'll be rewarded. Blessed are those who now have a rough time, but then, right? That's not what it's about for the Church Fathers. Yes, of course, the Beatitudes are about suffering, mourning, hunger, persecution, all of that. But for each of these church fathers, these predicaments are what? They're occasions for the training and the development of character, of virtue. And so our, our present circumstances are for them never matters of ultimate concern. Well, regardless of our circumstances, our need is always to enter into, and more deeply to enter into, a real participatory relationship with God. Now, sometimes that can be hugely challenging depending on our context. Obviously, it's precisely then that God wants to train us. The result of the link between virtue and interpretation is that for the church fathers, the Beatitudes function as a pathway on the journey to salvation. For Gregory, how much time do I have, uh, Alex? Whatever I want, all right. Brace yourselves. <laughs> okay, so um, they shouldn't have said that, Alex. Uh, 
Gregory, Augustine, and Leo interpret the eight Beatitudes as stages. It's a result of their approach to virtue, right? They see the Beatitudes as stages. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard a contemporary interpreter do that. But they all do as stages, as a ladder, uh, which leads finally to what, what uh, Gregory calls the super celestial earth, the super heavenly earth which is the inheritance of those who have led a life of virtue. Now, at various points at the beginning of his other sermons, all on the Beatitudes, he reiterates this notion the that the Beatitudes are steps on this ladder. And he's in the end of the, at the end of the Beatitudes, he's arrived at the, at the summit. St. Augustine, very similar. He actually goes, strange sermon. Augustine's always strange. In his sermon, he has three interpretations right side by side. He goes through the Beatitudes three times. First time, simply a general explanation of them. Second time, he's interested in explaining how many Beatitudes there actually are. You think, what do you mean explaining how many there are? You just count. No, because um, although you might think there's eight when you read them, the, the blessing of the first and the blessing of the last are identical. And so for Augustine, number one and number eight are one and the same. So there's really only seven. Why is that important? Well, that's important for the third time that he goes through the Beatitudes. Because in the third time, he takes these seven Beatitudes and he links them up with the seven gifts of the Spirit. Or at least in the Septuagint, there are seven gifts of the Spirit in Isaiah 11. So he, he uses the Greek text here, right? The, the Hebrew text actually has only six, but... We'll ignore that. Seven in, in, this, in, in the Greek Bible, right? Seven in the Greek Bible. So he takes the seven Beatitudes of, of his understanding of, of Matthew 5 and the seven um, gifts of the Spirit. And then, of course, he has this eighth one left over, right? Well, of course, that's the eighth day. The eighth day for all the Jewish fathers is what? It's eternal life. It's the eternal Sabbath. It's the eight that comes after the seven of this life. All right, that's Augustine. Um, the real point, of course, is it's all about going up. It's all about going up. Uh, it's all about the ladder. It's all about greater participation. It's all about mystagogy into the divine life. It's all about transfiguration. Gregory um, makes explicit the point that the happiness that we aim for, the beatitude, beatitudes, the, the beatitude for which we aim, the happiness for which we aim, that it is God himself. Because God is happiness. God is beatitude. He says the one thing truly blessed is divinity itself. It's a happiness that never changes for Gregory. Now, our changeability allows us to increase in happiness and so increasingly to come to share in that eternal happiness of God. So what we can do at our creaturely, in our creaturely modes, our, our finite modes, is not to be perfectly happy in the sense of perfection, the way you and I understand perfection, at least, typically. But Gregory says, let's understand perfection perfection differently. Let's take perfection to mean always to be changing into the happiness of God himself. That's happiness. And so we can participate, he says, in that. That's the aim of the Beatitudes. It's a mystagogical aim. Really, he uses his sermons as mystagogical sermons to train the people in the pew enter mystagogically into the life of God. His purpose is not to explain what Jesus really meant. In some ways, he almost, I would almost say he doesn't really care about that. Right? He's preaching in church, and his purpose is to lead people to eternal life. Salvation's at stake. So he does whatever it takes. Really. He does whatever it takes exegetically to get them there. And that's proper exegesis for Gregory to do whatever it takes to lead his people to perfection, participation in God's happiness. And so 
Our, our catechesis requires programmatic attention to the life of virtue. Programmatic attention to the life of virtue. Not in the way of a moralistic list of do's and don'ts, but a way of apprenticing our students, people in our pew, apprenticing them into the life of God. Because to participate in the life of God is to participate in capital V, virtue, in capital G, goodness, and in capital T, truth. Isn't there a danger of moralism in this patristic approach? Well, there is. There sure certainly is. But the dangers of moralism and of Pelagianism should not cause us to ignore that throughout the patristic and medieval eras, virtuous living was considered the sine qua non of escaping the temporal misery of the cave and of ascending the mountain of eternal happiness. It is only a life of virtue that really makes you and me happy, which is something that deep down we know. This morning, I compared catechesis to apprenticeship. In catechesis, the master artisan models and guides so as to lead the apprentice into the realities of the Christian faith. The realities of which the Christian faith speaks are invisible ones. They're heavenly ones. Our job as catechists, as catechists is to guide apprentices faithfully and safely from visible to invisible things, which is to teach them to look through visible things to invisible things, which requires training of our apprentices by means of a meditative approach to scripture. Mystagogy is the purpose of catechetical learning, and therefore it is also the reason of a biblical mystagogical approach. The cultural ethos of the modern period tempts us, as well as our students, to deny that God is intimately at work within the natural history that we see described on the surface of the biblical text. The late John Webster, a theologian, reformed theologian from um, England or Scotland, way up there, the late John Webster puts it this way. He writes, part of what, lead, what lies behind this denial that God is at work here and now is the complex legacy of dualism and nominalism in Western Christian theology, through which the sensible and intelligible realms, history and eternity, were thrust away from each other, and creaturely forms, language, action, institutions, denied any capacity to indicate the presence and the activity of the transcendent God. According to Webster, it's the dualism of the modern period that undermines a robust sense of divine providence. I think he's right. When we isolate pure facts of history from gospel truth, catechesis as mystagogy just won't work. Catechesis as mystagogy implies faith that at work in the many facts of history is always already the providence of God in Jesus Christ. Part of the catechetical task is to reawaken our apprentices to the belief that history is not just a bunch of unrelated pure facts, that instead it is a pattern, a pattern of the Son of God who has taken on himself human flesh. Christ casts his shadow everywhere. From the central point of history, he is the archetype who casts his shadow back onto the types of the Old Testament and forward into the history of the church, making himself present to us in word and sacrament. And our jobs as catechists is to make him visible so that our students see Christ, both in our lives and in everything that we teach. So every time you prepare for a catechism class, 
begin by calling this to mind. Pure facts don't exist. Thank you. We've actually just got a few minutes uh, to kick it open to questions, uh, either for Hans or for Father Lee. Well, friends, don't be afraid now. Yes, Matthew. Sorry, I didn't quite get the question itself. So the question is, where do you, do you see a hopeful turn in the seminaries that are training many of our catechists in this tradition that undermines uh, the study of this? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. You it is. turn the microphone off. Sorry? Can you turn the video microphone off? Yeah, it's a video of microphone off of this question. It's, it's an explosive question. And uh, yeah, it's true that I'm undermining much of contemporary biblical scholarship. And I often get accused of that, and I never deny the charge. <laughs> it's true. Um, because I think much of contemporary biblical scholarship is built on the notion of pure facts and is built on the notion that what exegesis is, is it is to um, ascertain um, either um, the, what the author really meant when he wrote it, or the history behind the text, which is even more speculative. But both, in some sense, are speculative, although I think that the former, trying to ascertain what the, biblical, what the author really meant, does intimately tie in with exegesis. So I think there is a positive element there, definitely. Um, authorial intent is nothing to snicker at. But um, neither of the two um, suffice. Well, it depends how, what you mean with authorial intent somewhat. But if it means understanding what the author meant at the time, the historical secondary author, the human author, what, what he meant at the time, if that's what we understand by authorial intent, that's not enough to do exegesis. So yeah, you're right that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm undermining. But just one caveat there, none of what I've said is meant to undermine history properly understood. All it's meant to undermine is pura historia, pure history. Um, and much contemporary scholarship, unfortunately, continues, also especially much especially much biblical scholarship, unfortunately, continues to labor in that, in that vein. Now, uh, there are positive signs as of a man's hand uh, that things might change. Uh, the, the, there's a strong move, I think, toward theological exegesis over the past 20 or 30 years, and it's increasing in strength, I think, so much so that I even wonder whether whether grammatical historical exegesis among evangelicals still continues to be the sort of generally accepted mode of interpretation. I doubt that that is still the case. However, when it comes to theological interpretation, one always needs to ask the question, so what do you mean when you say we need to read the biblical text theologically? And we can't, we can't have shortcuts here. So theological exegesis must be a participatory exegesis. Matthew Levering's book, I don't know if I have it on the list, but perhaps not, right? But Matthew Levering, Catholic scholar, has a book called Participatory Exegesis. It is an awesome book in this regard. Um, but exegesis must be participatory or sacramental in character. Um, that is to say, Christ is already there. Time, chronological time, gets broken up in exegesis because there are deeper levels at which you find something that actually chronologically is later, namely the reference to Jesus Christ. That's really what, what drives allegorical exegesis, at least for the Christian tradition. I mean, not for Philo and, and not for the early Greeks, but for Christians, that's what drives allegory primarily. 
I think. Um, so other hopeful signs? Yes, there are. Um, is there a return also to participation, to the notion of participation and to the exegetical implications of that? Yes, I think there are signs of that. But I do worry that the general mode of theological exegesis opens us up to a more postmodern understanding of, well, as long as we read theologically and ask theological questions of the text, we're, we're doing great. But that's not the one and only purpose. How you do this really matters. Um, you know, I often get objected to by biblical colleagues of mine who say, you know, you're, you're advocating for, for all this postmodern subjective reading of, of Scripture. And I understand why they're saying that, because there are all kinds of theological modes of, of, of reading. And so it really matters that it be a Christological reading that sees Christ as already there in Scripture. But at the same time, if, if the objection comes from the, from, the, from the standpoint of, well, there can only be one right reading of the Bible, one right, and that's the historical one, I say, well, you know, on that point, actually, I mean, I don't have much use for postmodernity, but on that score, actually, postmoderns have a point. Um, there isn't one interpretation of Scripture, and the entire Christian tradition knows that. It's only moderns who don't. Of what, sorry? Of the word that you were using instead of program. You wanted to have a more intentional, programmatic uh, attention to, to virtue. And right. I can understand what you mean by that. Because coming uh, out of both an education background and somebody who's very passionate about texts, I carry the word to my seminary so I need to bring this out somewhere that I don't hear that. I cringe when I hear programmatic. Right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, 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 and now I want to of it. I don't believe in how-to books. If that's what you're afraid of, I don't believe in how-to books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let me try to, to put you at ease. Um, and, and I think I legitimately can because I'm completely with you. Um, when I say programmatic, I don't mean, well, here is the how-to book, here's the handbook, and, and go do it. What, no, what I, what I meant by it is actually more like a consistent um, approach that doesn't let up, programmatic, and I don't even, maybe it's a wrong so ter use of the term, but. Paper, you the word <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, will, I will duly keep in mind what you said. I mean, some of this stuff is already published, but I'll certainly uh, not forget what you said. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hans. What a wonderful preach. Thank you.